Hey guys, Jeff here. Thanks for pressing play on this episode of Pop Culture Quorum Deo. What you're about to hear is a hidden gem from our archives. Mike Duran is one of the sharpest Christian creatives I've come across, and his book Christian Horror is excellent, among the finest works of Christian analysis I've read. My interview with Mike about horror as a subject and a genre, along with his work as a Christian creator, really deserves more attention. So we're re-releasing it here today. I trust you'll either find it a great listen on your first encounter, or if you heard it back in 2019 when we first released it, you'll enjoy hearing from an old friend. Check the show notes for links to Mike's work. Enjoy the interview. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. This is a special episode, and I'm very excited to put it in front of you. Today we're doing an interview with Mike Duran, and if you aren't familiar with Mike, you'll learn a bunch more in the interview. But for now, let me just say that he is a skilled writer, careful thinker, and all-around fascinating fellow. I trust you're really going to enjoy this interview, and like I said, I'm looking forward to putting it in front of you. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into our interview with Mike Duran. Hey everyone, I am Jeff Wright and I am here with Mike Duran and I could not be more excited uh, to put this interview in front of you and really to conduct the interview. I am something of a fanboy for Mike's work and I'm just delighted to have him on the podcast. So Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Jeff, it's my pleasure. I, uh, I'm really happy to be on with you. And listener, if you're not familiar with Mike's work, I'm going to uh, read his Amazon biography. Um, and there will be links to his uh, Amazon page in the show notes here. You need to go by and check out Mike's work. And uh, anyway, let me let me give you some, some material to kind of whet your appetite for, for what Mike is working on. So Mike Duran is a novelist, blogger, and speaker whose short essays, excuse me, short stories, essays, and commentary have appeared everywhere. Relief Journal, Cemetery Gates Media, The Gospel Coalition. Coalition, Relevant Online, Bewildering Stories, Room Org, Zombies Magazine, Breakpoint, and other print and digital outlets. He's the author of The Ghost Box, which was selected by Publishers Weekly as one of the best indie novels of 2015. And he uh, is using that book to create something that my southern tongue is going to have a hard time uh, saying well, I think. I'm gonna, here's, my, here's my attempt. Uh, it's a para-noir series that continues with Saint Death from 2016. Uh, he also has a southern gothic horror novelette Wicker's Bog, a nonfiction exploration on the intersection between the horror genre and evangelical fiction entitled Christian Horror and others. You can learn more about Mike, his writing projects, cultural commentary, philosophical musings, and arcane interests at MikeDuran.com. So, Mike, there's a whole bunch in that biography I want to talk to you about. Um, can can we just start with your background, though? What part of the world are you from? Um, how were you converted? Can you kind of help us meet you uh, in those early days? I got to tell you, Jeff, hearing you read my bio, it makes me sound pretty darn weird. So I hope we didn't scare any uh, listeners away with that. But Well, brother, uh, if you're weird, you're the kind of weird I want to be associated <laughs> with. So <laughs> no no shame on our side here. Uh, you know, I'm a Southern California guy. I lived out here uh, all my life. My uh, parents uh, uh, came out here from or came out here from Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, so but I've grown up here. 
here had uh, raised in a Catholic household, but um, it was pretty dysfunctional. You know, my uh, my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was kind of an enabler. And so that kind of cycle was going on and uh, had a lot of uh, creative impulses. I was a reader at a young age. And so I was very good at just locking myself in my room and reading comic books and and fiction, just read a lot of sci-fi and horror, you know, when I was a kid. And um, so anyway, that but I was, a, you know, an altar boy, went to Catholic school for like uh, eight, eight or nine years. And so I think that's where religion, you know, kind of took root in me mm. because a lot of the images, you know, Christ on on the cross, the stations of the cross, uh, just the iconography of Catholicism really seeped into my life. And uh, however, once I reached, you know, high school, I ended up um, just, uh, you know, going going off the chain. You know, I ended up getting into drugs and occultism. And back then, this is like in the 70s. So I kind of was raised at the tail end of the, you know, the counterculture movement. But Back then it was, you had, I hate to use this term, but like, this is where the good drugs were. Sure, sure. (laughs) You know, so we were taking hallucinogens and magic mushrooms and that really, um, you know, affected me. And there was kind of a synthesis in that stage of my life, a synthesis between uh, the drugs, hallucinogenics and um, occultism. You know, we had a a friend who was a warlock. Really? In uh, in in high school, yeah, and we, I mean, we used to go on our lunch breaks, Jeff, and he would uh, he was trying to teach us. These are high school kids, but he was trying to teach us how to use our quote unquote third eye, hmm. you know, which is a common term in you know occult circles and things like that. But anyway, long story short is that that was a huge rabbit hole that led to a lot of despair, a lot of emptiness. So once I reached my early 20s, I mean, I was just uh, circling the drain existentially. I mean, I had a good job and everything, but I was really a seeker. I, I had been on my, uh, you know, Catholic roots. And, but I always knew there was a God. I was just tortured by, you know, trying to find out why I was alive. What was my purpose in life? Was there a purpose? And, but that was combined with these uh, real esoteric, um, religious, uh, hallucinogenic Hmm. rituals I was involved in, you know, and I was reading Aleister Crowley, you know, the famed, uh, uh, you know, uh, magician. Uh, and I was reading, you know, we we used um, uh, Timothy Leary's The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which more or less he had translated into a handbook for ego death through huh. uh, hallucinogenics. And so I was actually pursuing this, you know, I wanted mm-hmm. to die to myself in order to be reborn in the, you know, cosmos or something. And, but it was just such a, a, a an empty pursuit, Jeff, it really was. I mean, I can't even explain the type of despair that was driving me. And anyway, again, long story short, I ended up uh, starting to a friend, a friend of mine had uh, begun to um, 
notice some occult themes in rock music. We were super big rock music fans, went to all kinds of concerts. And, uh, but he began to notice occult themes in rock music. And once I started exploring that, for instance, Jimmy Page's fascination with uh, Jimmy Page of, of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page's fascination with occultism, and he ended up buying Aleister Crowley's mansion on the shores of the Loch Ness, you know? Sure. And, and that was just once I it was like my eyes began to be open where where um, you were seeing all these uh, these threads of darkness, of, of deceit, uh, of, of uh, sa- Satanism involved in some of what I deeply cherished. And uh, I remember at that time I read, for whatever reason, I read uh, Hal Lindsey's Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. Sure. It's it's strange how big an impact on pop culture Hal Lindsey had. Like That book and then the late great Planet Earth, I think it's his too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was a little bit before my time, but you can look back and see that these things were selling at numbers that really unprecedented for the time. So anyway, I'm, I guess I, that may seem startling to some of our listeners, but man, he was selling a lot of copies back in, in the time period. Those things were yeah. first being published. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not blown away by that. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt. I just, no, no, it, no. it's interesting yeah, to see the how Lindsay drop in. I, I, you know, I've since went back and cause I ended up, you know, writing a memoir, publishing my memoir uh, a year or so ago. And so I went back and did some research and I picked up a copy of <laughs> Satan is alive and well on planet earth. And I was thinking this is pretty cheesy. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, it just doesn't. It it didn't. It obviously didn't have the relevance now in my life that it did then. But back then, it just rocked my world. I mean, sure. it really did. I began looking through my apartment. I was a single guy. Then I began looking through my apartment and just seeing like, there's the devil. There's mm-hmm. the devil. That's devilish. This is devil. You know, it's like you're just seeing the hands of the devil was at work in my life in all these areas. And uh, I was just walking on eggshells for the longest time. And anyway, long story short, again, is I, I ended up coming to Christ and it was a pretty radical conversion. I mean, I just did a U-turn, dude. I mean, I just I just my whole life changed. And uh, we were going to Greg Laurie's church, which was, back then it was Calvary Chapel Riverside. But now it's Harvest. And, and Greg Laurie's, you know, this very popular evangelist. And mm-hmm. and so we went and we kind of got grounded at uh, Greg Laurie's church. And gosh, from there, I ended up, you know, getting real involved in church. And then I feel like this testimony is going on forever. But I because a whole nother section of my life was becoming a pastor. I ended up becoming a pastor and getting into ministry and did that for like 11 years. Just incredible experiences in the ministry, some highs, some lows. And the lowest being that after 11 years, our church ended up disbanding and mm-hmm. I was just so burned out. We had four kids. Um, you know, my wife and I were, uh, were uh, you know, we homeschooled our kids and we were pastoring and it was just incredible burnout time. And sure. I kind of wandered. It was, I was like, I did the Moses thing and just wandered in the wilderness for a long time. And really that's how writing and art kind of came in is that I, you know, being out of the ministry, I I was really struggling to figure out what the Lord wanted from me because I didn't feel like I was called back to the ministry. Uh, but I had gifts that were related to that. Some of them were uh, communicative. 
You know, I used to love I used to love to tell stories, Jeff, in my sermons. And actually, and, and to be honest with you, that was one of the draws of our church was people uh, liked my teaching, <laughs> you know. And and one of the things that I did was I, I told stories. I ended up exploring the the idea of stories and um and in you know, I would use stories and illustrations. I was always experimenting in my preaching with a different way to communicate. And how could you get this truth across? And it was really fun. And I once I got out of the ministry, man, I really missed that. I missed being able to communicate with people and and touch uh, people and in, in in a creative way. Mm-hmm. And really, I think that's how I end up getting involved with uh, you know with writing was it was just that you know that urge kind of led me there so but so that's a long (laughs) that's a long bio right there hey look no no apologies needed in fact it made me think like if if i can get mike to do this again i've got so much more i want to talk to you about um if i can sidebar for just a minute i'm not sure how this stuff tells with your time frame but if you're in california um you know with with the after effects of the counterculture. I mean, we're talking like not just the Grateful Dead and, and some of the hippie bohemian stuff, but like Charles Manson, right? And some of the Beach Boy stuff. So that's all. I mean, you're living near the epicenter of it, even if not right in the chronological moment, um, which is fascinating. And then uh, uh, maybe for a future conversation, because I really do want to talk about your art. But, um, you know, you talking about your background in the occult, I have this theory that, you know, if Augustine is right, and I think he is, that we're made for our creator and we're restless until we rest in him, a secular culture or a culture that's, you know, continuing to push towards secularism is never going to be able to escape the instinct to connect with their creator. They're just going to find substitutes for it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing, even here in the Deep South, the the reemergence of full-blown occultism, uh, particularly mm-hmm. through the use of like ayahuasca to commune with these higher beings, Um could you tell me what I have never heard that? Could you tell me what that is? Or yeah, ayahuasca is a hallucinogen that, um, if I understand it correctly, is is a root. Uh, it comes from a root found in um, in in the rainforest that basically lets the body metabolize DMT more slowly. Mm-hmm. And so DMT is this chemical. Listener, if you're not familiar, that. Um, it is naturally occurring within the body. We think that there's probably a big release of DMT at the moment of death, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it, it leads to these transcendent states of euphoria, but also what some would say hallucination and others would say, no, not hallucination. It's an altered plane of existence. And so um, I've met a few people who have been using that or, or rather had used that in their background because they thought it was a way to connect with something greater than themselves. They mm-hmm. were They were meeting intelligences that, you know, like would pick up the conversation with them from the previous time they talked. Mm-hmm. And then I started hearing, um, you know, I try to, I just, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I try to, uh, I try to be thoughtful in what I consume, but I've got a pretty voracious appetite. So I was listening to Alex Jones on Joe Rogan's podcast and he was talking about some of this and I thought, huh, that's interesting enough. Joe was very enthusiastic about ayahuasca use. 
Um, hmm. But then some of the Christians that I uh, podcast I listen to, so Mike Heiser's Paranormal, mm-hmm. um, right. they had a guy on who was a former occultist who was using ayahuasca to unlock his his third eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Durbin's Cultish podcast has had people on talking about this, and it kind of clicked from my head that you know, Mike, we need people like you in public spaces talking about these things because I think you're going to have a host of people who um, who sort of without knowing any better, are going to try to fill that God-shaped hole in their life with these kind of encounters through uh, psychedelics and, and whatnot yep. or psychotropics, yep. and then are going to come out on the far side of that being burned. And they need to have Christians say, look, we've been there. We can show you we can show you a path forward now that you've seen yep. the end of that stuff. And so maybe we can get you back on and, and we can talk more about uh, that phase of your life, if you'd be willing. That uh, oh no I lo- I love to that uh, I think you began uh, by talking about how there's that you know this dr- this uh, this drive in us to connect with God I mean and that's really you can't it's easy to just explicitly condemn you know no mm-hmm. drug use and sure. that type of thing but at, at the base or at its root this idea of transcendence of connecting with something higher or um, you know, uh, experiencing a plane of existence that we don't right now at its root level, that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We, we, we should hunger and thirst for life in, in a, in a, in, in, you know, deeply in, in a, in a way like that. And so, so it, it's easy to just condemn drug use and say, we shouldn't do that. But at its root, there is that existential yearning to connect with someone higher, to, to find meaning or purpose in life or, you know, to understand the, the cosmos in a way that we don't. And again, that could sound very esoteric and, and, and I don't mean it to, but uh, like I said, it's, it's, I, I think getting away from just blanket condemnation is probably a good thing. Not that you condone, you know, drug use, but that we seek to understand what is motivating, you know, those who are seeking the occult, what's motivating those who are using hallucinogenics, what, you you know, what is their base motivations and stuff? So absolutely. I mean, I, I see it as as ministry field. Practically, like you said, we're never going to advocate anybody take up something that's going to alter their minds. Certainly not. Exactly. You know, I'm not I don't think it's I'm not going to take a secularist uh, kind of scientism view towards the ayahuasca use and say it's off the table that they're communing with intelligences. Um, mm-hmm. it, I'm just going to say if you are, those are not entities that have your best interest in heart and they're not going to mm-hmm. represent themselves faithfully. You know, we have a category for those kind of things. Um, and so we're not advocating for that use, but we also need to understand, like you said, what it is that's compelling people towards that and how we can, you know, trying to choose my words carefully here, but just leverage it in such a way as to say, we actually can help you connect with the authentic thing you're looking for that will mm-hmm. satisfy you. Um, mm-hmm. We, you know, basically as Christians, we anticipated you would have this desire and we would love to show you how you can have it met in Jesus Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, one, of, one of the things that I left out of my testimony <laughs> or my bio was uh, I, when we when I graduate after I graduated high school, we uh, me and uh, five other uh, friends got in a horrific car accident. It put me in the hospital for a couple days. And um, but we ended up we drove off a cliff in a nearby mountain. It was like oh a 30 foot, 30 foot cliff. And we flipped a couple times. We ended up in the wash and 
I mean, thankfully, miraculously, no one was seriously injured. I crushed vertebrae in my back and, and had to be taken out on an ambulance. But wow. I always I always looked back on that, Jeff, because we were so drunk and, and so intoxicated. And I always look back at that. And, you know, it's like the devil was trying to squish my life for the longest. And that's what I think about when I think of people that are um, – that do these drugs and stuff like this, they don't necessarily realize the malevolent forces that are at work. You, you know what I mean? The yeah, for malevolent sure. forces at work to destroy them, to drag them as far away from God as possible, and to snuff their life out if possible. And I think once you begin to see that, and I mean, the devil now, it's like, I don't even know if people believe in the devil anymore, but that was such a huge thing for me to realize that that evil is real, darkness is real, it has a face, and it's coming for you. And we really do need to put on the full armor of God, like Paul said in a Ephesians to battle this, I mean, to get in, involved in this great, uh, you know, a war with principalities and powers, you know, so anyway. No, sure. I deeply resonate. I think of, you know, it, it's easy to go here, but you think about Paul on Mars Hill, right? You, mm-hmm. You're obviously casting about for some encounter with the divine because, you know, we know you're made in the divine image. What you don't realize is that there are all these uh, supernatural intelligences, right? We we call them demons and and Satan that are happy to seize upon that and seize upon your ignorance and manipulate you in a way that will destroy you. Uh, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who reigns over all these things, and you will find life in Him. You'll find what you're looking for. And so, uh, I'm I'm very much with you. I, I think one thing that has happened to evangelicals in you know the last couple of decades is. Uh, because we see some excesses in history over supernatural stuff, and I'm even talking about going back to Martin Luther, um, but then also we just sort of ad- adopted this scientific uh, consensus as the default mm-hmm. setting, which is, eh, yeah. unless unless it's proven pretty clearly, we're going to assume there's nothing supernatural that's impacting our life, and that it's just not consistent with what the Bible describes as reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that's, that's uh, this idea of materialism, how materialism has uh, permeated uh, culture, but it's really permeated the church. I have actually, you know, posited before that this idea that one of the reasons why, in for instance, Christian publishing, uh, Christian fiction publishing, uh, uh, speculative fiction has really struggled to gain traction in the Christian fiction market. And I've thought before that one of the reasons for this is that there's this subtle um, embrace of materialism yeah. in the church. Where, for instance, the imagination, like uh, a a lot of Christians just think the imagination is evil, you know, casting down imaginations and every Mm -hmm. high thing that, you know, so, so, uh, so the imagination is fundamentally evil. And so we've got to control that we can't let our minds. And so things like speculating about the future or about, uh, you know, human nature and reality, things like this, uh, you know, epic fantasy. I mean, that's who wants to bother themselves with trolls and and, uh, you know, dwarves and elves and things like that. We've got the gospel to preach and stuff. So I, I wonder sometimes that this um, uh, this subtle embrace of materialism has actually caused Christian imagination to wither.
either. Sure. Well, don't you think, uh, again, I want to talk, you raised the subject of speculative fiction. That's the thing I want to talk to you about next. But I think part of the reason C.S. Lewis has emerged, uh, reemerged as such a powerful influence in our day is that he saw these things before they got here and was already working in the field. So you've got that letter he wrote to Carl Henry saying, you know, if my apologetic work is going to continue, it's not going to be in debates. It's going to be writing in, in fiction so we can sneak past the watchful gargoyles, right, mm-hmm. and, and get to the heart and, and, and the imagination and trigger something that uh, maybe is protected by a, a, a presuppositional commitment to materialism. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think people who have felt the absence of good Christian storytelling are going back and finding Tolkien, Lewis, and saying, man, we should have never let this stuff, as you said, wither. We should have been cultivating this all along. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, it's, 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 oh, sorry, Mike, oh, I'm I didn't step on you. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I'm oh, actually, you're the guest. I'm going to insist that you finish your point, and then I'm going to ask you about speculative fiction. Uh, speculative <laughs> fiction. Well, I was just going to mention with uh, like Tolkien and Lewis, it, how often you hear that someone who's, let's say, not a Christian – uh, really enjoyed Tolkien, uh, Tolkien or Lewis, but uh, then they later on in life realized, hey, they were Christians and yeah. all this stuff was was Christian in, in nature, but it kind of squirreled its way into their psyche. And uh, you know who I really like on this is, uh, is it Holly Ordway, is that? Okay, I'm going to write that name down and look into that more. I, I think, yeah, I think I, I wrote about her. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation of her last name, but she wrote a book on the Christian imagination and apologetics. And she was a devout atheist for uh, the longest, but she was a huge uh, fan of, of Tolkien and Lewis. And it was actually through the discovery of their worldview that she became a Christian. Hmm. And I think it's an interesting uh, template for how Christian artists can work. In other words, we don't put explicitly Christian stuff out there. That tends to turn, immediately turn off readers. But if you just put uh, shadows, uh, you know, of uh, of the gospel or, you know, but you you lead readers to yourself. I mean, the evangelism of the Christian artists shouldn't be in our art. It should be in the artist. Mm-hmm. In other words, people can, you know, sh- I want them to read my books and enjoy them. I don't want them to feel preached at. But when they listen to me, they will find out that I'm a believer. I have a clear worldview. And I think that's what Ordway, what happened to her is that she she read Lewis. She read Tolkien. She loved their stuff, you know. And and then once, but once she found out they were Christians, that kind of rocked her world. And she, uh, I think she's a, a Christian professor now. I'll have to look that book up for you, Jeff. It's it has it's an apologetics book, but uh, yeah, Holly Ordway is, okay. is her name. I'm definitely going to look into that as well. So yeah, if you if you come across that and can send it to me easily, I'd love to see more. And listener, I'm sure you'll feel the same way. So we'll put it up on our social media once we uh, w- once we kind of have links that we can use. Well, Mike, is it you, you mentioned speculative fiction? Is it is it accurate to say that that is the field you are plowing in when you're doing your fiction writing? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, speculative fiction is kind of an umbrella term for a whole bunch of different genres. 
And so you could put things like dark fantasy, epic fantasy, science fiction, urban fantasy, horror, weird fiction. All this stuff can go under the umbrella of speculative fiction. So it is kind of uh, an, an umbrella term, you know, that's used for a whole bunch of different genres. But yeah, that's definitely um, what I write in. Okay, so we had Stephen Burnett from Lorehaven on to review Godzilla not too long ago, and I. I I first saw that term from him. So is uh, you've kind of given us an idea of what goes under the umbrella there. Is there a working definition you could offer us for speculative fiction? Uh, well, a working definition, I would I would say that it's an um, it's an umbrella term for uh, genres that deal with the dark, weird, and fantastical. Um, it would be something along that line. You know okay. what I mean? Okay. So we're thinking like I guess. Uh, you know the the imitators of Tolkien would fit under that, but also maybe people who things like the Dark Crystal or um, yeah. yeah, it's a maybe it's an unfortunate term because so much can be put, and you know okay, there's so many gotcha. uh, genres that kind of and subgenres that have splintered off of others. You know, science gotcha. fiction, and then and then it it merges into now you've got echo, uh, you know, ecological fiction, and you've got all these different subgenres that are kind of birthing from within these uh these existing genres so yeah it's it's just a really broad term it, it might be more helpful to specify a genre you know i write mm-hmm. science fiction or i write urban fantasy or i write horror or epic fantasy because they are really distinct genres in and of themselves but speculative fiction is just a way to you know kind of categorize something that's not real time it's not um uh gosh I, I so want like to a say different not, plane of existence and, and different rules for that reality of that world. Yeah, but see, like something like horror, horror can uh, a horror can take place in the here and now. Sure, it's just got elements in it that are fantastical okay. or uh, supernatural um, uh, or something like that. So okay, I think I've got my handle. It. it sounds like something like Stephen King's It, which is popular right now. Sort of does some of that, right? So you've got kids living in a real world with bullies, but there's also uh, this cosmic entity who shows up as a murder clown to terrorize them, right? So it's. Yeah. Uh, uh, shades of a real world, but with fantastical elements introduced in. Does it sound like I'm tracking in the right direction? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think the the uh, the definition is. I mean, the the subject is or, or the category is pretty uh, you know amorphous anyway. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you're I think you're tracking. But did, have you seen the the latest uh, uh, version of it? By the way, yeah, I did actually. We actually went opening night uh, and. Uh, uh, well, let me ask you why you raised the question, because I don't want to get too far ahead. Well, I haven't seen it yet, and, and I, I, I've seen the first one, but I was just wondering if you guys have. And I'm interested in that as part, partly as a cultural phenomenon, yeah. because I think it was the previous, you know, the, the, the first uh, iteration of that, of the film was like the, the, so it was like the highest grossing horror film uh, of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating to me how the horror genre has continued to um, 
you know, B, it's, it's just so sustainable. Sure. It's sustainable both on a, on, a, on, in a, for like, um, from a film, um, from a filmmaker's perspective, and obviously there's, there's, uh, you can do more low budget, uh, horror films than, than a lot of other films. But, uh, then as far as the, our cultural psyche, why is it, you know, that's always fascinating me. Why is it that the horror genre is, is continued to be so, uh, you know, so popular and resonate with people so much. Anyway, that's the only reason I ask is I'm, I, I kind of have been charting, you know, this, this, uh, this progression of, of horror. And it seems like it, you know, it was one of those things where it was commercially successful, but it also taps into, you know, something in the human psyche that, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, no, I totally get where you're coming from on that. My One of my theories, and it doesn't explain the whole thing, but one of my theories about the horror genre in our day, the reason it's so compelling, is that it's one of the last places where we can go and just everyone gets to assume there's going to be something that is actually evil and something that's actually good, and it's the job of the good thing to fight the evil thing. Yeah. And yeah. In, in an increasingly morally gray world, I think we find that so refreshing. You know? Yep. Yeah. So that I, I'll, I'll try to give you the 10 censor on, on it. Chapter two. It's much longer than chapter one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it quite lives up to chapter one, but it's super worth seeing. So mm-hmm. uh, cool. cool. Skarsgård is incredible. He's an incredible actor. And uh, anyway, I, I'd, I'd commend it to you if your conscience allows it. Um, yeah, definitely. It's good stuff. Well, so speaking specifically about, I mean, I guess horror and, and speculative fiction in your own work. So let me tell you what I have from your catalog. I have uh, Saint Death, which I actually won in a contest you held and you graciously <laughs> sent to me. Um, yeah. I have Christian Horror, which is nonfiction, but I, I'd like to talk to you about it later. That's a book that I've actually bought two copies because I gave one away. I'm, I'm a big fan of that book. And I also have um, Wicker's Bog, which has not—I've not started it yet, but it's sitting on my shelf, waiting for uh, you know the next time I, I get into a new fiction work. You clearly have an interest in these things. When I read, uh, when I read Saint Death. I think, Mike, I hope you'll see this as a compliment. I, I kind of feel like I'm reading a, um, someone who's been influenced by Kolchak the Night Stalker, uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. the Dresden Files a little bit. Um, yeah. I have read in my time a ton of material from Michael Connolly, Harlan Coben, uh, these guys who have these ongoing detective character stories, right? And I really feel like Reagan Moon is among the best of them. And so can you talk to me about how you... Uh, I know that this is the second book in the series. How did you create the character? What made you want to do it? What made you want to do serialized fiction and and some of the uh, inspirations for your work in this this fictional work you're doing? Wow, that's a big question. Um, Yeah, I'm sorry. Again, fanboy out a little bit and... I, I no, feel no, like sometimes I'm on the Chris Farley show. I don't know if you remember that skit, but that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you re- reading that stuff and taking interest, Jeff. Really do. Um, the Reagan Moon series kind of came about because I wanted to uh, sink my teeth into something a little more substantial. I think at that point I had been writing um, just standalone stories you know, in standalone uh, fiction, which I really like doing. I mean, I kind of cut my teeth on short stories and I Mm. really love that uh, medium. Um, But I, because I'm more or less an, I'm considered a hybrid, uh, you know, author. In other words, I was published in, I've been published in the mainstream, uh, the um, uh, traditional fiction and I'm published, you know, self-published, indie published. So, 
I wanted to kind of sink my teeth into something a little bit more substantial than just short stories and standalone novels. And <clears throat> one of the things that had always fascinated, you're right about Kolchak. In fact, he, uh, I think uh, uh, Reagan Moon is referred to as Kolchak a couple times. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know if I did in book two, but I know in book one, uh, the, his detective friend Jimmy calls him Kolchak. Oh, okay, okay. Well, and I feel so validated then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it is true. I mean, that's I, I used to watch the Night Stalker, love that. In fact, that was you know the whole uh, Night Gallery and Twilight Zone and all those things were just uh, stuff I grew up on. <clears throat> but anyway, to the uh, Reagan Moon novels were. Um, you know what? I wanted to have a, a somewhat sympathetic character who uh, danced around the fringes of the supernatural, but remained a skeptic. And he remained a skeptic um, for some deeply uh, personal reasons. You know, he'd been let down in his life. He'd had loss in his life. And so while he was fascinated by the unknown, he's fascinated by the paranormal. He just couldn't buy into it and stuff. So, you know, I wanted to have this character just get plunged into something he can't deny, something he Hmm. can't turn away from. And um, so that's actually what happens in – I don't know if you've ever read like the first book in the the series is when the big turnaround happens for him. And I just use it – the the medium I used in that book was – a pair of ancient <laughs> uh, like glasses or lenses that um, he puts on, you're able to wear and see into the spiritual dimension. And when Reagan oh, sure. moves, okay. puts, these, uh, puts these glasses on rather skeptically, he sees his guardian angel. Hmm. And so that's who Bernard is. Bernard in the series is Reagan Moon's guardian angel. And he's just blown away that, why would I even have a guardian angel? Sure. You know, he's, he's blown away with that. But anyway, it, it opens up the door to his, his imagination. He begins to realize that the world that he was skeptical of is existing right alongside of him. And so, <clears throat> you know, and then his life just obviously takes a drastic turn. And so really the arc of, of this story, as I see it, is Reagan coming to the grips with the fact that this normal guy with a lot of hurts, a very cynical person, that uh, he has a much, much bigger calling in a much, much bigger world than he can ever imagine. And so that's kind of the, <laughs> you know, the whole arc of the story. I just wanted to get to sink my teeth into a character. I'm actually working into a character, you know, into a story that I, I wasn't. But I'm actually working on um, – book three right now and hopefully i have it done by the end of this year if not uh, into the next but really excited about uh this series it's been a slog but i'm excited about the the series well to answer your question from earlier i've only read thus far saint death and uh, i'm actually not quite finished with it because you know you've been a pastor some of the things i have to read for sermon prep just crowds out uh the reading i want to do um you know uh, in my in my leisure life, but by the time I met Reagan Moon, the supernatural had you know to give too much away, but had literally hit him in the chest, right? And so, yeah. in the first book, is that the ghost box? 
The Ghost Box, yes, is the first book. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm definitely going back to get it, and I will eagerly await the third as well. So you will you will see me through these these winter months that are coming <laughs> up, where you know the sun goes down about the same time it comes up around here, and we'll, uh, we're looking for stuff to do in in the confines of the house as well. Um, cool. So you said short stories as well. Um, again, I've not picked up Wicker's Bog, but when I was looking at your material, I saw Southern Gothic, and being a son of the South, I thought I've got to read it. Um, is that the short story collection you would recommend that people who want to kind of start reading your work start with? Or is there another place you'd say, hey, this is this is the jumping in point? Well, I have a, a short story collection, which I call Subterranea, which is but that's published quite a while back. Uh, it has some of my first works. I'm not sure I'd recommend it as the jumping off point. I actually think Wicker's Bog is a good point for someone that's more of a like a novelette, I think you'd call it. Okay. So it's not a, a full length novel. It's probably an hour, hour and a half read. And uh, I think that would give people a good taste. I've always been fascinated with Southern fiction. I'm a huge uh, Flannery O'Connor oh, yeah. uh, fan, and but I've always loved the voice, you know, the the uh, the Southern voice, and then the kind of the mythos, you know, the 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 legends and the environs of the of the South have always intrigued me. And and Southern or, uh, Wicker's Bog, I think I, I tried to capture that. It's actually Wicker's Bog was uh, the whole impetus for that story. This is going to sound weird, but it came to me in a dream. Really? Which didn't. Yeah, I just had I had a dream about a Southern Gothic mansion that was submerged and there was a mermaid hmm. that lived in it and stuff. So that's what uh, Wicker's Bog is about. It's about a, a mansion that is submerged, and there's a mermaid that lives in. It. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, but yeah, I think it'd be a good uh, start, a pretty good starting point because, uh, like I said, it's a it's a shorter read, and uh, you know, I, I think the story is is pretty good too. Okay. Okay. Well, listener, if you're interested, I think that thing is the paperback six bucks on Amazon right now, and. Yeah. Um, it, it's it also has a, an audiobook listed. Did you do the audiobook for that? No, actually, a, a writer friend of mine uh, did that. Amy uh, McNew, she narrated that for me. So okay, well, you audiobook listeners, six bucks there as well. I uh, I commend that to your reading, listening, uh, however you choose to consume that material. Uh, Mike, I, I know I don't have uh, a ton of time with you, and so I don't want to set too breakneck a pace, but there's so much I want to get to. Is it okay if we, we talk about the book Christian Horror? Sure, sure. Well, that was the first thing I read from you, and I just want to commend you. One, I, I spend my time reading a lot of academic work, uh, a lot of footnotes. I'm a footnote reader. You know, uh, I'm buried up in that stuff a lot. And I was just so impressed by the way you took horror as a genre and, and just chartered it from not just biblical genre, um, and, and, and that was really insightful, but then through the history of the church and, and documenting the ways that uh, not just that horror works, uh, but it, it, how the church has always had a relationship to the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it was a breath of fresh air to me because, like you've said about yourself, I grew up reading comic books, science fiction, watching horror movies, reading horror literature. But it seems like the church, uh, you were sort of pushed to to be a dualist here, that like you were a horror fan over there, but you didn't bring that into 
the church community because that that was viewed as maybe a cultic or uh, just a non-starter for Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your book, uh, it was like meeting a friend, basically. Um, yeah. What's been your experience in the church circles you've been in uh, with Christians' default setting towards horror? Is it is it? Do I sound credible? I mean, do, do people kind of take a, a slant-eyed look at that in your circles as well? Oh gosh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's something you do have to kind of apologize for and. Uh, explain. You have to be ready to explain your interest. I'm always fascinated. I mean, I I think people should explain why they watch romances. Yeah, for sure. Why should I? Why should I have to explain why I like horror when when you're you're watching or you know my criticism of like for instance the Christian reading community like Amish Amish uh, fiction and mm-hmm. and um, you know w- women's fiction just dominates the market. It right. just dominates. What What does that say about us, Jeff? Now, again, that's not an apologetic for horror. That's just to say, if we're going to be critical of a genre, why not criticize why romance is the is the best selling Christian genre? What, why is that, Jeff? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. in other words, I think we can criticize a whole bunches of things when it comes to, uh, you know, our reading, our watching, and things like this. But I know with the horror subject. It's a little bit odd to me that I've become or that I even wrote this book because uh, I'd say I'm a horror fan, but it's not like like, uh, you know, it's not I'm not infatuated with it. You know, Uh, I I like it, but I like speculative genres across the board. You know, I I, I like epic fantasy, too. Mm -hmm. I like science fiction, too. And so I know a lot of people who are just like, I mean, horror is their bag, dude. It's like Mm -hmm. they watch all the horror to be honest with you, I'm not, there's a lot of horror flicks that I haven't seen. I I don't like slasher flicks. I mean, I still, I have to admit, I've never seen like uh, Jason and and Halloween. I've never seen those. Now, I I probably should just to uh, at least come off as being credible, (laughs) you know, (laughs) writing about the subject. But I just... I don't understand, for instance, how people can enjoy slasher flicks. And sure. maybe that's a, that's a whole other subject because I have talked to some people, some Christians, that actually have some uh, interesting uh, arguments for why slasher flicks, uh, you know, are, are, uh, you know, are legit to be enjoyed. Well, like yeah. I said, that's another subject. But uh, as far as writing the uh, the book Christian Horror, it really did spring out of just watching the church and watching Christian readers um, do everything to kind of avoid using the term. And, and, and yeah. I mean, I think I, I the um, initial. Um, illustration that I used in that book was I went to a writer's conference in uh, <clears throat> out here in Orange County and uh, I spoke to a um, he was an acquisitions editor for I think Bethany House at the time and he was talking about a book that was out at that point it was T.L. Hines's book um, Waking Lazarus okay I'm and, not familiar but it, it belongs to the genre Yes. Okay. Well, the okay. thing the thing was is that he called it, and this is what he said. The the editor he said it's labeled as supernatural suspense, but it's horror. And then he went on to just kind of it was kind of a throwaway a line, but he said uh, Christian publishers don't use the word horror, hmm. and so th- they don't like the term. And so there was a whole bunch of alternative terms that they use for horror, like supernatural suspense, or uh, it was like redemptive suspense or something. It was really kind of a corner. 
horny term. And um, they use anything but horror. And that fascinated me. So that kind of began this trek of just looking at how the church deals with or Christian readers approach the subject in general. And that's when I began to realize, hey, there's kind of like an issue here, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, actually, it's funny. In that way, I think the church maybe dovetails with the culture because, you know, horror has had sort of a renaissance in the last decade. Uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, um, I think Ari Aster's uh, Hereditary, Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House, they kind of they kind of captured public imagination. And I started noticing these articles that would either say they're not horror movies, they're thrillers. Mm-hmm. Or they created this adjective and they said, well, they're not really horror, they're elevated horror. <laughs> and I was thinking, what are you talking about? And yeah. you can't ask the authors, but just talking around uh, the subject with my friends who who read and watch uh, you know, various forms of uh, literature and, and film, they would say, well, you know, but I think we, we kind of want to cast around for a good horror movie because there's so much junk in the genre. And my default setting was, have you ever seen a romantic comedy? There, yeah. There's there's t- 12 terrible ones for every good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure why we have this kind of highbrow approach to horror as if every genre doesn't have more stinkers than winners, uh, but somehow yeah. horror gets slotted into a special category I, and I, it's inexplicable to me. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Well, you know, what's interesting too, Jeff, is how um, it's, uh, like horror is a, a little bit of a, it's kind of a squishy subject because uh, I mean, a uh, an element in, for instance, film, because a lot of films that wouldn't be categorized as horror have horrific uh, elements to them, whether it's a, a, a stalker or, um, you know, an accident or a murder, some type of, uh, uh, you know, uh, violence to it. Mm. Um, so it's 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 one of those uh, subjects that can kind of it's 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 a bit squishy because it can it, it can bleed into a whole <laughs> bleed into a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, other uh, genre elements and and still not necessarily be considered horror, but it has uh, horrific uh, uh, effects, I guess, on the emotions. You'd say. Oh yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Um, Wuthering Heights is a book that I've argued for a long time. Like we should see this as a horror novel, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. But to your point about the church, why do you think Christians are so reluctant? Is it is it just that we don't know what to do with the supernatural, and if it's something that's not, you know, kind of the the Sunday school God Jesus Bible? We're just we're afraid to go near it. What would you say has made the church so? Uh, I'm not sure the right word. Apathetic or suspicious of, of horror as a genre? If you could pick one reason, you know uh, the the uh, arguments that I the argument that I hear most regular against horror is uh, is it the is it in uh, Philippians where it's uh, you know whatever is good and sure. pure and and true and blah blah blah. You know, think on these things. And so that's the argument that I hear most often is, is that by looking at darkness, focusing on evil, focusing on violence or gross out stuff is is not a Christian thing to do. We need to focus our minds on the good and the true and, and this or that. So that's the argument that I hear most often. So the person that's watching you know, something that has ghosts or occult elements or evil or gore, it just pollutes your mind. And the thing is, is that that's true. There's elements of truth to that. 
You know, absolutely. You know, I don't want to sit and say that, you know, a, a person can watch a, a violent movie or an evil movie and not be affected. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. that, there's elements of truth to that. And we absolutely need to respect when people have sensitivities or uh, issues with with those things. I mean, that's that's definitely true. My son. <clears throat> One of my sons is um, he's he works in like the ER in the emergency room and um, him him and I always have these weird conversations where I'll say hey so what have you encountered this week or or recently and he'll go into all these tales about just you know grotesque just terrible stuff Jeff sure. you know we saw this we saw this a well shooting. thanks be to the Lord that there are people who are willing to serve their neighbors in those moments right I mean like yeah, he's yeah. got to see brutal stuff but I'm thankful that when I need those services there's people who are there to do that so absolutely yeah. there's a there's a quote and I think about when I talk to him sometimes is uh, and I think it's by Akira Kurosawa was he uh-huh. like the Japanese filmmaker mm-hmm. yep and he said something along the lines of the role of the artist is to not look away. Is yeah, to not I think look- I have seen you either tweet or Facebook status that before. And that is such a power. I mean, that's an that's a, an imagination provoking quote. Anyway, just. Uh, yeah. But see, I, like, I think about like my son, like you know, like you just said, thank God that there's people that can look at a dismembered person or that can look at someone who's been deeply wounded and he won't look away. And I think that that horror is one of those things where <clears throat> we can concentrate our 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 mind upon something that others will run and flee from. Now again, can that be bad? Of course, if it's gratuitous and you're doing, you're getting some kind of uh, perverse joy out of it. I think that's wrong, but that not necessarily. I think Jesus looked evil in the face. Sure, you know, stared I mean, it down. He, right. he didn't. He didn't look away. He, he didn't look away when the when the man in the tombs that was possessed with a legion of demons. Jesus didn't look away. He mm-hmm. he faced him and and you know what, Jeff? I think. We need to not look away, and more Christian artists need to not look away and stuff. So the argument for uh, not watching horror because our minds, you know, we need to focus on what's good. We also need to focus on what's true, what's true and what's real and what's legit. And sometimes that means looking in the face of a demon-possessed man and not looking away. Sure, sure. Well, that's, you know, the next question I had is, what would you say is like an apology, uh, an apology or rather for the horror genre to a Christian community? But we've really gotten into it there that it is, you know, we're committed to what's true and good and beautiful. And part of the way God has ordained history to play out is that it is true there are dark supernatural elements and are horrifying aspects to reality, even if you don't get into what we quote unquote call uh, supernatural, right? And so it, it's sort of a um, it's a living in God's world as He made it. Maybe is that fair to say? You think? Yeah, I, I think so. <clears throat> I you know I think first of all, we do need to respect that everybody's different and that there are reasons that some people shouldn't watch horror. You know what Absolutely. I mean? I, I, I find myself sometimes thinking, oh, you know, they're the weaker brother, you know, and, and saying it in a demeaning, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a demeaning way. And, you know, we got to step back from that because 
uh, I'm not out to say that every horror film is fair game for Christians. I just don't believe that. You know, I just don't believe that. I think that for me, it's like once you begin to look at the genre objectively and pick out like films or books and look at the particular elements and what they're saying or what they're teaching or what their message is, you know what the the film that and I it's the. Uh, the t- the name of it slips uh, my mind, but what was the film out a couple years ago with the it was kind of apocalyptic and and it was the family that, and the girl was deaf. Oh yeah, uh, it was a quiet place, and actually uh, that is how I met you online. You had said something very generous about my review of it, and I thought, well, I'll look oh, into okay. this guy. And uh, anyway, a quiet place is is the first time I encountered your name, Jeff. Isn't wasn't the uh, you know, the climactic scene towards the end of that movie uh, with the, the, the father, wasn't that just, I mean, that just tore me up, man. Absolutely. It, and, and you know, that, so, that is why John Krasinski wanted to make the movie. He said the genesis of the, the film was him saying, how can I communicate how much I love my children? And that's that what the movie it, came out of. Yeah, it's a, it's such a redemptive. I, I mean, I was just I, I was in tears, mm-hmm. and I was I remember my first impulse after I saw that movie was I'm going to write this guy and tell him how much I like that movie. You know, and I never mm-hmm. did, but that it was like my sense was this guy got it. Now, if if the average person just looks and this you know this movie is uh, is is classified under horror, oh, I'm not going to watch it. Just think what they're missing. Sure. Just think what they're missing. And so I think that there's a sense that once you begin to um, talk through certain movies, you had mentioned The Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really loved that. Me and too. I thought that I thought that the last episode in that was so incredibly powerful with people coming to grip with their with with loss with their own demons was just so powerful i don't know what the filmmaker's worldview is but i know that that uh that had just powerful emotive uh, uh you know uh, it had emotive power behind it stuff so anyway so i i guess i'd say you know when dealing with uh, uh you know brothers and sisters regarding uh, the horror genre i'd say we need to have grace you know but it helps to spend some time just to talk through uh, specific films and the messages in them and things like that. Sure. I, I actually, I have handed out A Quiet Place to multiple friends who, who think they don't like horror, but they are mm-hmm. Christians. And I'll tell them this is among the most Christian movies I've ever seen, uh, particularly yeah. in the way it portrays the family and self-sacrifice on behalf of the, the parents for their children. And, and to a person, they've all come back and said, yeah, I get what you're saying. I may not buy the whole genre, but yeah. with that film, I get what you know, kind of what keeps you coming back to the genre, looking for these themes and these elements. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, on uh, Christian horror, I mentioned it so thoroughly researched. Uh, this may be a throwaway question that that you don't, you know, doesn't stir anything. But was there anything surprising to you as you did the research for that book? Did you, you know, did you come away going, I did not expect that, anticipate that, no, I'd find that? Uh, not necessarily. I think I was, if I was surprised by anything, it's the wealth of, um, you know, imagery and, and religious image imagery and, and spiritual, um, you know, imagery that's involved in horror. I really mm-hmm. wasn't expecting I mean, even the idea, and I think this is important. We had talked about materialism, you know, how materialism has affected the church, but even the simple idea of God, 
ghosts, that there's that there's an immaterial world, just challenges a fundamental, uh, unbiblical worldview and stuff. So I think the more I got into the subject, the more I was surprised by the uh, religious imagery, the spiritual implications, and really the amount of people who you know uh, were Christians in the horror field. I mean, maybe the classic one is the Exorcist, because sure. both. Uh, William Peter Blatty and then uh, Friedkin, William Friedkin, uh, who directed it, you know, they both expressed, uh, you know, religious impulses in doing it. I think Blatty more or less came out and said, the whole reason I wrote this book was to show that there is that there is a love. And he quoted C.S. Lewis, that there's a love at the center of the universe. It's like, (laughs) you got to be kidding me. It's like when someone watches The Exorcist, is that what they come away with? There's love at the center of the universe. You know, but here's the author saying, no, if there's something this vile, this evil out there, it presupposes something ultimately good. You know, so I think maybe if there was one big takeaway for me, it's just how, you know, once you start getting into the genre, it's like how much is actually there, whether it's individuals, uh, the creatives that are involved in it or the thematic elements that, you know, just uh, riff so closely to 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 biblical themes. That element you're talking about there with Blatty and the Exorcist, I actually met for the first time uh, through Scott Derrickson, who went on to fame as you know the, the craftsman behind mm-hmm. Marvel's Doctor Strange mm-hmm. uh, with his film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Scott Derrickson would call himself a believer today, but at that time he was self-consciously saying, I want to tell a story about evil supernatural in order to raise the question if if this exists, which still seems to be sort of a, a lingering element of a, of a more biblical worldview in the, in the common culture. If we believe demons exist, they belong to a framework. What else is in that, in that mm-hmm. ecosystem, right? And mm-hmm. I remember being just so blown away by the profitability of telling that kind of story to raise those kind of questions. Yeah. Yeah. I love, you know, I loved his film, uh, The Exorcism, Emily Rose. I just thought the lead actress in that was so compelling. Abs- yeah. So physical. I mean, she sold out to that role. Uh, I- yeah. I'm with you. Jennifer Carpenter is who that is. She went on to, I guess, bigger fame in Dexter, but uh, I had never heard of her when Exorcism of Emily Rose came out. And I thought it was among the most, you know, compelling performances I've seen a woman give in the, in the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, brother, you have been so generous with your time. Um, I don't, I don't intend to keep you all day, although I would enjoy doing so. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you just in, in what time we have left. You're not just working in uh, literary arts; you're, you're a craftsman as well, and you're you're doing work to help Christian creatives find each other and grow in their own craft. So, could you tell me uh, in, in in whatever time you can about your uh, your woodworking and then also your work with the uh, Christian creative? fellowship? Yeah, this is more or less something that's uh, gestating. It's in the process. Um, But, um, you know, we attend a a larger church. And ever since I've been out of the ministry, I've kind of been searching for, you know, my place in the world, so to speak. And, um, you know, the arts have really helped me, you know, kind of regain my footing and uh, also, you know, connect with God and with other people. Uh, But one of the things I've uh, 
um, you know, experienced along the way is that uh, the church uh, typically does not seem to um, engage creatives very well. And of course, you know, musicians have a home in the church. You know, sure. if you have a musical instrument, you could play on our worship team. But as far as uh, graphic artists, video game designers, uh, writers, novelists, painters, oil painters, sculptors, what's their role in the church? And, um, <clears throat> you know, so that's been something that I've seen on and on where th these, uh, uh, you know, this group of, of Christian creatives feel, I won't say left out because, I mean, obviously there's all kinds of things in the church that one could do that don't involve art, but there is a sense where you want to be able to have your geekiness, <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. affirmed in the church too and stuff. So this has been something that I've been uh, thinking about is developing a Christian Creatives Fellowship. And so I'm kind of in the process of doing that at our church. I've met with the leadership and they've embraced the idea enthusiastically. So right now we're working on getting together a, a core group of Christian creatives and then going church-wide with it. You know, it's still in process. To be honest with you, I'm a little nervous. I've never done something like this before, but it seems like a very timely thing, you know, Jeff. I mean, it's like our culture is shaped by creatives, really. It's like mm -hmm. filmmakers and and writers and, and uh, you know, uh, musicians. These are the people that are shaping so much of what we see and believe and are inspired by. And I just really have a desire to see Christian creatives get into that mix. You know what I mean? It's like right now, like politics is way downstream from, from like Hollywood. And sure. so is the church in some ways. The church is downstream from Hollywood. We've allowed Hollywood to, to shape our worldview sometimes more than, uh, you know, the, the, the church and stuff. So I would love to see uh, kind of like this exodus back into hmm. Hollywood or back into the creative um, epicenter of, uh, of, of, you know, culture right now and stuff. So that's kind of where I'm at. But yeah, you're right. I do a lot of, uh, apart from writing, you know, I, I, I do a lot of, of crafting with the wood and uh, started off by just doing wall crosses, but those sold so well that I just began branching out, doing other things, working with uh, epoxy resins and clay. And it, it's just been a fun, you know, fun adventure. So we'll have to see how it goes with the, the whole church endeavor thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. I'd like to make sure that our listeners know how to connect with you. And so uh, I know MikeDuran.com. So last name spelled D-U-R-A-N, MikeDuran.com is one way to, to see your work. Where can they find you on you know, Twitter, Facebook, places like that? Actually, if you go to my webpage there, MikeDuran.com, I have links to, I think, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and I try to stay pretty active. I mean, Instagram, I do try to concentrate more on my art. I have an author page with, on Facebook, which, uh, you know, I concentrate more on my writing. And then Facebook, I'm just a general rabble rouser on Facebook there. So if you want to stay away from politics and controversial issues, don't friend me on Facebook. Just go to my Instagram 
Instagram feed or something. Okay. I understand that. Okay. So again, it was Twitter, Facebook, uh, if if you choose Instagram, and all that can be linked to from MikeDuran.com, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's it. Well, great. Well, Mike, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you for your work. Uh, thanks for being so generous with uh, your time specifically today. Thanks for being for being on the show, brother. My pleasure, Jeff. Con- uh, continue the good work with uh, Pop Culture Cor- Corum Deo, man. Love your guys' stuff, man. Well, we appreciate it, and we, we certainly hope to. And, and, you know, keep feeding us good material, man. We'll stay around if you guys keep feeding us. <laughs> All right. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to wrap up the interview there. Y'all go check out MikeDuran.com. You're definitely going to profit from it. You need to get some of those books. I recommend Wicker's Bog and St. Death if you want to start reading Mike's fiction. Um, But you'll find all kinds of stuff that's going to compel your interest. So MikeDuran.com, check it out and uh, put some some money behind the, the work of people like Mike who are creating good stuff for the church in multiple different ways. Okay, everybody, that was our interview with Mike Duran. I hope that was as enjoyable for you as it was for me. And I certainly hope you'll go and check out Mike's work if you're not already familiar. Check your show notes. We'll have links to Mike's author page on Amazon, as well as a link to the Holly Ordway book he mentioned. Uh, Everything you need should be there. And you can find it on MikeDuran.com as well. Next episode, we're looking at bringing back special guest Terry Gant to help us look at the genre of Western movies. Think about what particular redemptive possibilities there are in that genre and give a review to a classic from the uh, from that genre. So you can look for that one on your podcast, hopefully next week. Thanks for listening to the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. We want to encourage you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. Talk to you next time. <laughs>